This is Judo Cast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest is the definition of a complete grappler. A former Division I wrestler that holds a black belt ranking in both judo and jiu-jitsu. He was a three-time United States national judo champion and a three-time UFC championship coach. He traveled the world for over 10 years representing Team USA as an athlete, and now he shows his unwavering support for the sport of judo as a mat side coach for the national judo team. We will talk about the difficult balance of coaching and fatherhood and the challenges of coaching your own kids. He spent his childhood under the tutelage of his father, who made him take a very scientific approach to judo at an early age. This analytical study of judo later helped him excel both as an athlete and as a coach, as he utilizes judo to help reframe the conventional wisdom in other grappling arts. He was a California state wrestling champion and one of the most sought-after high school athletes in the country. Upon his graduation from Temecula Valley High School, he was offered a full-ride scholarship to the University of Nebraska. You will hear the story of how he ended up circling back to his first love of judo. Please welcome former judo champion and current coach to many of the greatest combat athletes in judo, jiu-jitsu, and MMA, Justin Flores. All right, I am joined today with my man, Justin Flores. Uh, welcome to JudoCast episode number five. Justin, thank you for uh, spending your night with me tonight. It's a pleasure to have you on. Why, thank you, Chuck. It's been too long, brother. Um, thanks for having me on. I'm humbled and honored that I would get to make the Judo Cast podcast. Yeah, man. Uh, of of all the people I've got on my list, uh, you were definitely on the short list of, of people I wanted to get to because, you know, all the experiences that you've had, you know, outside of our traditional Judo world are of interest to a lot of people out there. And, you know, even for me, you know, you've kind of been up to a lot of things and uh, you got a lot of cool things going that are connected to the judo world. And a lot of people out there that are, are in that traditional judo world don't see how broad and how big the world of judo can be. And I think that you've kind of got your feet wet in all different types of judo and grappling. So I think you've got a lot of uh, experience that, that we can all learn from. Thanks. Yeah, it was always kind of my goal to, to spread the knowledge of judo in other domains so i had uh when i finished my schooling at menlo college i had a really cool speaker from google come and he talked about this thing called paradigms paradigm paralysis and just paradigms and being in a domain like a in a, a, a area of understanding like say you're in sports or business world or all these these areas where there's conventional wisdom and I always wanted to utilize judo as the crutch in other in other forms and disciplines, like in the wrestling or MMA or in martial arts in general or art. So I utilized what I had. My upbringing was just traditional judo. That's basically eat, sleep, breathe. My father, my brother, my family. That's all we were about. So I know that's not that applicable in the real world. So I wanted to kind of reframe my knowledge base into other domains, other areas where you know. I could kind of utilize what I already knew and it could help others too. I mean, that's pretty cool that you, you kind of did this by design, you know, cause a lot of us are, you know, shooting from the hip and we're looking for, you know, new activities or new goals. And, 
to say that you've been, you, you thought that way from the beginning is pretty cool. But um, so a lot of our listeners out there that may or may not know Justin, I know Justin has a really big following in the grappling world. And of course, all of us in the judo world are well aware, but Justin and I both grew up on the uh, the same circuit in Southern California, you know, going through the Nanka Yudong Shikai and all the, the local tournaments. Uh, Justin is, I think, three or four years younger than me, but um, we went, we grew up in the same world of people. And back in those days, you know, I think things are a little different now, but we had a lot of tournaments. So I remember watching, you know, like I was a few years older, but I remember watching you you know, as a, somebody that's a little bit younger than me, when I was in high school, even and you're in middle school and, and watching you and your brother, it was always like a pleasure to watch you guys even just warm up from a, for a tournament. You know, I used to go, you know, by the time I was in high school, I was kind of the lonely guy. I didn't have a lot of kids in my club and I would go to a tournament. And I'd watch, you know, you and Jake warm up and you guys always had, you know, when you say traditional judo, you know, whatever it is, I mean, you developed like this you know, beautiful judo for lack of a better description. I mean, your judo is amazing. It always has been, but you had that from the very beginning. So for me, like looking down at somebody younger than me and and Jake and I are a little bit closer in age, but watching you guys, you know, perform like even at the early days on the local circuit, like you guys, like we all knew that you guys were going to make it, you know, to a high level of judo. So it, it was fun to watch in the beginning. Man, well, I appreciate the, um, the compliment for sure. Me and my brother, you know, my dad was a kind of a scientist with it. He broke things down technically um, in a way that might be a little bit different compared to other senseis and coaches where my dad's a, a doctor and he's a genius in his own right. For but sure. When he, re- when he um, raised us on the mat, we, we had to call him sensei and we we were really highly disciplined. We would have to train before school and after school. I remember walking home with my brother from uh, elementary school numerous times, knowing that we were going to go home to, you know, a two hour session in our living room about how the 65 kilogram Olympic final went in the 1984 Olympics and how all these gripping exchanges were nullified and how entries were, all trajectories of angles and all, all broken down like as, as a math almost as an algorithm so thinking like that science-based approach the way my father framed it all for us really set us up to to think about judo and our sport a little differently where I wasn't always just like feeling what was open I had a lot of layers that have been developed with my brother and my dad guiding our young career at that point which interesting thinking back because you know he started us as uh gymnasts so we could get our proprioception our balance our coordination our flexibility in order to like be better prepared for a future on the mat doing judo and a couple weird little known facts my brother and sister and i we were members of san diego sandskippers jump roping team where we tour around the western half of the U.S. doing competitions and demonstrations at SeaWorld, Disneyland, at malls. And it was something that kind of helped throughout my career, or just even to this day, for coordination and all those different things for, for just cardiovascularly and cutting weight. A little different approach. <laughs> cutting weight always. Right. <laughs> you know, when you're, in, when you're in Eastern Europe in the winter, there's not a whole hell of a lot of places you're going to be cutting weight. So you got to find a warm hotel room and jump rope. That was usually my go-to. 
that explains a lot of things. I mean, I didn't know that you had like formal training in jump rope. We actually were talking about you recently. Uh, we're, I'm working on some jump roping with my kids at the dojo and I'm actually not good at jump roping, but I, for some reason, like your name came up. I'm like, Justin was always so good at, you know, skipping rope. You obviously have to have the skill set that's good enough to where you can get a good exercise. For me, I can't really get a good exercise doing it because my technique is so horrible. So I, you know, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do. It's funny because it is. It's hard to get a workout if you mess up every other jump, you know? Right. So, yeah, just keeping a rhythm and, and going for, I try and still get about an hour in a week when I can, you know? So, it, my knees are, are impacted, so I have to make sure that I'm on mats that have some, some subflooring or a give if I'm going to do that. And actually, you helped me. I built a, a dojo in my garage, the, the quote unquote floor that flow factory that uh, Jason Herzog made it. But he, um, so I have three layers of tatami. So there's enough give there where I can jump rope and actually take some falls in there. Yeah. That's, you got to do what you got to do to keep your body healthy. We're, we're, uh, we're aging young men here. Oh man, that's for sure. So I made sure once I had a little bit of, you know, a following on Instagram, I could kind of, I could kind of work with companies that, that helps my longevity and to be able to get companies that can support me doing what I do for as long as possible like on it. And there's a couple other ones that, that are CBD companies and nanocraft CBD. So, right. so those things actually help. And I feel like I, it can't hurt. So I'm going to do what I can until the wheels literally come off. Yeah. So your traditional upbringing, you know, I, I always watched you and I know you're with like Sensei Matsubara and, and your father obviously was a huge influence. What, what do you think now, like looking back on your career, like the relationship that you had with your father, you know, spending so much time in like, and, and there's difficult times that you're spending with, you know, together, you know, you're cutting weight, you're preparing for tournaments, you're, you're there with, for, you know, celebrating the wins and, but also the losses. And, you know, you had the fortunate thing to go through that, you know, with your brother and your father that was there the whole time. And I think that's, that's pretty cool. And, you know, I have boys that are doing judo now, and I always just hope that we can continue to have a really good relationship, you know, through their judo careers. And, and you, it seems that you were able to have that. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't all, it wasn't all rosy. I, my father, it was strange because at a young age, I really didn't look at him as a father. I looked at him as my sensei, which is strange. And he made that distinction kind of important. He, he made sure that, you know, there wasn't favoritism on the mat where there's 30 people. And I'm like, daddy, no, it was sensei. And then he was so busy being either in med school or residency because he went to school a little later because he had his own judo aspirations. He was a stuntman. He had a, a long history in martial arts doing he's black belt and seven martial arts discipline. So wow. uh, growing, growing up, uh, that was the role he was, more of a mentor sensei than a father figure. So Learn, looking back and learning from that, I don't know if that's the exact approach I would take because I, I love my son and being a father is like so fulfilling. I don't know if I want to jeopardize and paint those waters. So I kind of made a deal with myself in my head that I'm going to I'm gonna have my brother try and teach my son judo, at least the basics, the first foundational movements. So it's fun and it's not the pressure from dad because already as a three and a half year old, I see my son already, you know, resisting anything when it comes to, to me guiding him in something. He always runs to mom. You know, that's just at the age he's at right now. So I don't want that to continue. I don't think it will, but I don't want to have that kind of pressure to do anything until, you know, he's old enough to make those decisions on his own. So I want to have him be excited to do these things. And I know there's probably, 
there's probably a way that's possible. It's just, I didn't grow up with it. There was, I mean, so many times I'd rather have gone to, to baseball practice or gone to the movies or, or done normal socializing with, sure. with friends at a young age. But, you know, I'd invested so much time and energy by the time I was in high school. It was, you know, I couldn't really turn back and go back. I'd already seen the world. My mind was open. I, I, I was no longer just a normal kid. So that upbringing changed the way I, I kind of have an ideology of the world that's different than, you know, all the friends I grew up with. So I just kind of kept going with it rather than, well, I want to be normal. Right. Yeah, I think we all go through that to a certain extent. You know, I have kids myself that are judo players and I think it's a fine line and I'm definitely no expert. I'm just a few years ahead of you. My boys are a little bit older and every kid is is definitely different. And, you know, I, I, I feel the same way. I'm constantly talking to myself about how I'm going to kind of walk them through this path because I want them to love judo and, and so far, you know, so For good, sure. but, uh, you know, things can change at any minute. So when you grew up, um, obviously you were doing judo since you were really young. When did you get your start in wrestling? So, um, did you say when did I get my start? Yeah. When did you, did you start training wrestling when you were just as young? Oh yeah. No, no wrestling. So, uh, I wrestled in a tournament in seventh grade. It was the Greco state championships. And I had never worn wrestling shoes. So I had all, I started judo when I was eight. So this is seventh grade and eight. So it's like maybe 14, 13. So I had a good five or six years of judo experience before, before I ever setting on a wrestling mat. And I, I went the night before to a, a teammate's father's house, the Halsey family. I remember and their them. dad was all, all Marine champion, Olympic alternate, their whole family is in like the wrestling hall of fame, San Diego. They, if you ever stepped foot on a wrestling mat in San Diego, you know, Halsey. they were also really involved in judo. And then Brandon Halsey was the Bellator MMA champion a few years back. Right. Um, so I went to, I went to their house and I mean, it's not really a secret, but he was, you know, he was pounding Coors lights all day and it was 7 PM and he was teaching us how to score points in his living room. And <laughs> it just was kind of like, okay, it was kind of a freak show. Right. So I show up the, the next day to the tournament and I don't know any of the rules. Every match I wrestled in, I got two cautions and the third one and I'm would from the match because I either tried to grab their leg or I did an illegal move. But I made it through all the way to the finals and, um, and I won. So I had like five or six matches and I, I won the Greco State tournament. I'm like, oh, wrestling thing's kind of fun right <laughs> so uh <laughs> so a few uh you know uh a few months later uh, i'm in eighth grade and I, I started getting on the map more religiously and learning you know shots and sprawls and some of the basics but it was mostly my hips and just a, a different way that judo teaches you to be light on your feet and to utilize your opponent's off balances is the concepts that i kind of grasped early rather than trying to 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 grind out and force things that, that, you know, to outpower your opponent. So that was something I could always kind of utilize was like timing and, and feel rather than that strength and grit, which of course I, you have to learn in wrestling. You can't just shy away from the whole time, but I had a little advantage there. It's all the, the mat IQ and time I'd spent on the mat that sure. I was wrestling high school seniors when I was a freshman. I had wrestled for nine years and I had wrestled for a year. But I was able to utilize, you know, a lot of techniques from judo. 
that's what differentiates you from a lot of the judo players that I grew up around, including myself, is that you were able to adapt. And I know you say it was a lot of your, obviously from the beginning, you know, you'd won a state championship with no experience, but later you went on to be like, not just a good judo guy that was good at wrestling, but you became a really good wrestler. And most judo guys that I know, you know, like for me, I was a judo guy that did pretty decent at wrestling, you know, with my judo, but I was fundamentally never a real good wrestler. And I remember watching you and I mean, so you went to a really, really high level of high school wrestling. And, you know, for those of you that don't live in California, the California state wrestling championships for high school kids is an extremely tough tournament. And so for you, after just a, you know, a few years of wrestling, you're wrestling versus, you know, kids that have probably been doing wrestling since they were four or five years old. And you were able to become, you know, a multi-time medalist and, and a state champion. Yeah, I I mean, I was fortunate to have really good coaches in high school. Our team, uh, my freshman year in high school, I uh, we had a new coach, which created a whole community that surrounded the sport of wrestling at our high school, Temecula Valley High School, and brought in a booster club and created, like, you know, a really hotbed for wrestling. Our, our dual meets would get three to 4,000 attendants. Wow. And... Um, we, we were ranked third in the country my senior year. And my brother only got to, uh, to have one year of that. And in that one year, he placed the state. Whereas the previous three years, he was always, you know, you know, knocking at the door. He was, he was just good enough to make it to state or, or would take down some of the best people, but couldn't, you know, figure the whole thing out. And within a, a season, you know, my brother and I were state placers that first year of, of having this new system in place where uh, Arnold Alfred and Lyndon Campbell, Lyndon Campbell was actually a judo player who had won state in California twice. And he was a national level judo player who trained at Henry in Los Angeles growing up. And, uh, and just, it, it really helped because he helped me with the crossover. Like, okay, sure. this two on one position, this is like having an around the back grip and a near sleeve or, or this underhook is like having the belt grip or, or this wrist control is a sleeve. So all those things, you know, I really was on like kind of hyperdrive where I would wrestle as hard as I can during wrestling season. And then the day wrestling season was over, I was doing judo every day. I would not, you know, wrestle in the off season or do judo in the wrestling season. So I was like kind of just a seasonal athlete at that point for two sports. And, you know, it, it was difficult to be able to manage and balance both of them because I'd take a long break and then I'd get back involved and there would be a couple bumps those first weeks. But then, you know, it all worked itself out. And I think that helped with me not burning out of either sport. I really, right. I put my whole heart and soul into one or the other, but the two blended really well. You know, I, I figured things out when I would kind of be able to do one sport rather than muddy the waters doing both sports simultaneously. Yeah. So with all that success you had in wrestling in high school, at some point, you know, you've been a judo player since you can walk. And it's possible, I know, with, you know, the social factors that, you know, judo possibly took a little bit of a backseat to wrestling in your mind. Is that the case? Or, or were you always thinking judo first? No, I was always judo first. It was only until my summer between my junior and my senior year where I kind of had to make a choice. So in between the summer when I was 17, um, I went and I spent three months just doing judo around kind of the Western hemisphere. I went to Montreal for a week for a big camp. They used to always hold in the middle of summer. I went to Miami for uh, a junior Pan Am camp. And then I went to Columbia for the junior Pan Am. 
And then I went to the Miami International, which was the junior U.S. Open. And then I spent a couple of weeks at Jason Morris's house. And when I came back, I was, I was just, I love judo. This is what I want to do. I want to be a judoka. I want to win the Olympics. And during that first few months of high school wrestling, or uh, that my senior year of high school, uh, the U.S. Open was the, it was the year of the storm, I remember. There's a big storm in yeah. 1997, I think. And um, the weigh-ins got canceled and all that. And uh, I showed up to the tournament, and it was a really tough tournament. And I made the finals, and I lost on a close, uh, I think, a penalty in the finals to the to the, the then Olympian, the 96 Olympian. And I was number two on the senior ladder. And then I went the next week to rendezvous, and I made the finals again and uh, lost to their number one Canadian. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be able to do it. Right. But over the course of that next, like, five weeks after those tournaments, I gained about 10 pounds, just growing. Right. And making 132 pounds for from 1997 to 2000 would have been impossible. And I saw the writing on the wall. It just, it was killing me. I, I made those, those, the weight, those last few times just by the hair on like my nose. It was, it was really hard. And I, my brother at that time was the number one at 65 kilos at the time. And they moved it to 66 right before that 2000 right. Olympics. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to be my brother. So I'm going to go wrestle for a couple of years and figure it out and then come back to judo. So how did that opportunity present itself? Were you, were you recruited by Nebraska like your senior year in high school? Yeah. So I was really, really heavily recruited after I won state my junior year. And then I won this tournament called the Beast of the East. It's in Delaware. And it's probably the premier wrestling tournament there is in high school nationally. And I had a lot of, um, you know, college coaches at the event that watched me. And most of the smaller schools at that point stopped calling me because the bigger schools took hold, like uh, Penn State, Nebraska, Minnesota, Arizona State. I mean, most of the Big Ten, a lot of the Northwestern was a big one. And at the time, you know, that was very enticing to, to get my education paid for, figure out what that student-athlete life would be like at a school that could win the national title. And I kind of weighed all my options at the time. And the deal that I ended up cutting, which was, you know, (laughs) kind of one of the reasons why the coaches that recruited me ended up getting fired is because, you know, a lot of college coaches, especially at that time, they they made deals with athletes and did extra. You know, you basically can't give a student that you coach a ride if you're working for the athletic department of the university because of the money it costs in gas. So there's so many rules, right? but they, they, they were able to kind of configure this plan where I only would have to wrestle in two tournaments every year, the, the big 12s and the nationals and anything else I wanted to do would be up to me. And the rest of the year, they would be able to allow me to do judo and train and compete wherever I wanted to. Interesting. So I signed a full athletic scholarship to the University of Nebraska. Um, I was the number two ranked high school wrestler in the country and the number two uh, American at 60 kilos going into that year that I, I, I decided to wrestle. And I, I was happy with the decision. I decided to do one more attempt at, at doing the 60 kilo junior Pan Ams 
the summer before I went to Nebraska. So that summer, maybe a month before going to Nebraska. And I showed up to that camp in shape, yet I was 20 pounds out. And I had a week to lose 20 pounds. <laughs> so That's crazy. I did the thing where I ran four times a day. I did judo twice a day. And by the end of that week, I tore my ACL. The last practice, the last round of Randall. Oh, no. So, so that was kind of the beginning of my knee woes. When my right knee got chopped by Harai Goshi, by uh, a bigger guy last round. And I kind of like took that as a sign, you know, final straw that, okay, I really am not going to do the 60 kilo thing anymore because it's so detrimental to my future. And I, I did my surgery in Nebraska. I went a month early and I, I got the surgery and I did all my rehab two times a day, every day for five and a half, six months on crutches when it's 110 degrees in Lincoln, <laughs> terrible weather, right. just crutch, not knowing where I'm going, showing up 10 minutes late, drenched in sweat, just not good memories from that first couple months in Nebraska, but I got it better. And, you know, I was back in the wrestling room and I was training with this team where uh, I was getting better every day. And it was fun. It was different. It was different than high school because, you know, I had all the top recruits in this, the, the country all in one place to train with. Right. And it really, I really loved the sport. And I really was looking at judo almost in the rear of the year at that point. So I had some success my first year wrestling. Uh, this was in 99 and 2000. It was a really pivotal year in my life, and I don't want to rant too long about too many topics without any kind of cohesion, but there's <laughs> like, this is kind of a, a big moment, this 99-2000 year, because this was the year of the 2000 Olympics. There was no trials. My brother doesn't make the Olympic team because he also couldn't make weight. He couldn't make 66 anymore because it had been about a four or five year window where he was number one at that weight class, but he had grown four inches and put on weight. and there's a lot of problems in our family, not, not just not just because of that, but uh, my parents split up and got a divorce while I'm gone, while my brother's in, in Colorado, and that that life that I I looked at as like wholesome upbringing that was perfect and conventional, and everything that you would think a normal upbringing was kind of became a lie to me a little bit. So right. I had to kind of rethink everything and. I was also in the middle of wrestling season where I was ranked in the top eight in the country as a freshman. Thirteen, that's ranked third in the country. So there's a lot of things going on. And those last 10 matches of that season, I lost all 10. I had wow. just like completely detached from, from getting better and just trying to like get through it. And I was a shadow of myself. And, and I have a lot of regrets for the way I kind of went through that time frame I should have you know maybe looked for help but I was struggling in all areas my grades um my relationships I kind of isolated and it just wasn't an optimal situation for me so that was that was hard and it kind of made me reconnect with my dad in a different way I'd never or just connect because he, he started to call me and become a, a presence in my life for the first time and almost ever that didn't have anything to do with judo. And it was kind of hard for me. Yeah, it's also a, t a tough time because you're you're also a grown man for the first time. You left the house, you come back. The, you know, the relationship with your father is different. Yeah, there was a lot like, coming of age. I, I was kind of reframing all the things in my life. And also, I'm, you know, 1,500 miles away. The only Californian on my team. So, you know, 
it was hard to relate to a lot of people, but I had my coaches and I, those were my Jason Kelber specifically, who was an amazing wrestler. He was a NCAA champion, beat Perry Brands in the finals of the NCAAs. Uh, he was amazing. Great coach too. And he's the one who actually plucked me out, recruited me specifically to be the 141 pound starter. And after that season, he got fired along with the whole staff for recruiting violations and just different things. Just, you know, almost basically like the deal they gave me wasn't the one that broke the camel's back, but there was other deals in place that they had made, which, you know, got exposed. And there was a lot more of that going on back then than there is now. I mean, they've really tightened the ship now. Yeah. It, it was an interesting thing because one of our wrestlers uh, got in trouble gambling and he was betting on, on college games and he, there was a couple of them and uh, they owed a lot of money and they came to the coaching staff and were like, look, someone's going to break my leg. I just need a loan. They loaned him the money and said, we're going to make you pay it off in the summer. And because in summer wrestling camps is when all the wrestlers make money. That's how they kind of like, that's their job. They work 10 weeks of the summer, all summer, traveling around doing wrestling camps. And um, another athlete, a football player, had the same issue. And our, our the, the wrestler, I won't use his name, said, hey, our wrestling coach gave me the money. You should ask your football coach. Oh, no. <laughs> so, you know. After that happened, the AD was notified and the full investigation happened. And my coaches, the ones that I entrusted and I really, you know, gelled with were fired. And they brought in a new staff going into my third year. And um, I didn't really gel with them. And that's actually something that I, I still, I still kind of grapple with because they're obviously great coaches, the ones that were brought in. I was young and immature and never gave them the chance that maybe they deserve. But it just wasn't right to me anymore. I'm like, I'm missing time doing judo right now here with this group, this, this group of coaches, this vibe I'm feeling. I, I, at that age, I wasn't, I don't think I was that intelligent, but I feel like I was a good judge of character. Sure. And the, the head wrestling coach there, you know, the first day he cut my scholarship in half. He didn't know me, didn't talk to me. That was just his first move. So it was hard to look at him as like anything, but like, what are you doing? Right. So I, I gave it a shot and I wrestled for that first half of my sophomore season. I was a redshirt sophomore, my third season. And uh, <laughs> on a snowy night, the night before a dual meet, I packed up my, my truck and I drove home in the snow. I didn't, I told the team <laughs> captain, Brian Snyder, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going back to judo. This, is, this isn't for me anymore. I wish, I still, you know, I wish I would have done it better. I wish I'd have cleared out my locks. I wish I'd have a face-to-face conversation with Terry Brands and Mark Manning. But uh, at the time, I just was so over it that I, I came back to Southern California and I tried to kind of find myself. I just doubled down on, into the sport of judo. Right. And it kind of brought me back into the fold after a good three, three years off the judo um, Theodore Roosevelt once said, far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Justin spent his childhood traveling the country, spilling blood, sweat, and tears on the wrestling mat and on the tatami. At the age of 21, he chooses to double down his efforts in the sport of judo to chase his childhood dream of becoming an Olympic champion. 
He will spend the next eight years traveling the world chasing his judo dreams. In the next segment, we will discuss the search for high-level coaching and the importance of having trust and confidence in your coach, someone you can lean on for guidance and support on and off the mat. As an amateur athlete, you are responsible for your own journey. With or without your coach, you have to focus on staying the course and learning to steer your own ship. So at this point, you're you're training back at home with your dad and your brother. Is that the, the first move from when you transitioned back into judo? Yeah. So, you know, there wasn't many partners. Uh, there was there was Ross McBasey, who was a 16-year-old kid at the time. Yeah. My brother, who was fresh off of, you know, kind of a tragedy in his life that, you know, between you and me and the people listening, you know, kind of affected him moving forward for a long period of his life, you know, as far as like, you know, seeing something 10 steps down the road and choosing not to involve himself in it because it could end in a negative way. You know, it kind of turned him into someone who was a little bit more like gun shy at pulling the trigger on something. Right. Rightfully so. I mean, it was something that it was a tragedy, you know, for our whole family. So, yeah. um, yeah, he decided at that point he took, he had taken maybe six months off gained a healthy 15 to 20 kilos. <laughs> he was about 185 <laughs> at the time. Yeah. I cut into 145. So yeah, I moved back and then we talked to Jason Morris a few months after. I think this is maybe like right. mm, the summer of 2001 maybe and decided to drive out there and to just to go all in. And at that time there was no real JMJC judo club. Uh, it was just me and my brother and Nate Tora and Carrie Chandler. Yeah, they, they just had people coming up because Jason really just retired. He competed in 2000, didn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was still thinking about. I mean, he was still on the mat doing judo in a way that was like competitive. Right, but his focus wasn't really building his program at that time. He was still kind of looking after himself as a fighter. Yeah, exactly. And you know, we learned a lot about judo through him. But as far as like a mentor at that time. I don't know if that was the right choice, but I learned a lot. I mean, specifically about judo and that helped. I mean, it helped get a gauge because he, he had done the tour so many times and, and understood sure. and understood what the IJF, you know, the, the athletes from different countries that are coached by different coaches. He knew the whole game. And that's mostly what I absorbed. I absorbed that knowledge of the greater world of judo in the context of, you know, because as we all know, you know, in the judo world here in America, that, that Jason is beautiful judo, but he looks at judo that isn't done that way as kind of like um, a lower class of, of judo. So if you try and grovel and, and, and do things that aren't appropriate to him, it's kind of trash. Where, you know, a lot of that right. psychologically worked its way into my style where, you know, I probably could have and should have, and still ended up doing a lot of, you know, quasi wrestling techniques within, with a guillon, you know, cause at that time it was legal before 2009, you could do fireman's carries and, and do double legs and those kind of things that I felt like I could have and should have ended up doing and utilizing more and more, especially when I'm in Eastern Europe, I'm, I got to understand that that's part of the sport. So it worked, it worked well to a certain extent, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that all of us at that in that era, we had struggles with trying to find, you know, where to go and what to do. You know, there was a lot of people that were, 
asking me to leave San Jose and come train. But there, there really wasn't, there's not a lot of high level judo programs. And, and like you said, there's only so many people in the country that really have a good understanding of the international judo scene. And, you know, Jason definitely had that and Jimmy. And at the time, you know, you had Colorado Springs uh, with Ed Liddy and San Jose State. There really wasn't, it's not like there's an abundant amount of choices like there is in wrestling. So you have to choose where you're going to get coaching or where you're going to get, you know, partners. You know, like sometimes it's not the same thing. You can get a good coach, but not any partners. You can get partners, but not a good coach. And there's all these different things. Yeah, exactly. And I think the secret, the secret sauce a little bit is, I remember I had Steve Cohen pull me aside once and it was kind of a profound thing. He said, he's like, no matter who's coaching you, go everywhere, train with everyone. Don't limit yourself by having a guru, like especially here in the U S and you know, it's something I pieced together a little bit, but he kind of crystallized it where, you know, I had been, as you know, I spent a couple of years in San Jose. I spent a couple of years, more than a couple of years at the Cohen's. I would go, four to five times a year and spend time up there. Colorado Springs, my brother lived. I trained there numerous times from sometimes weeks on end. Uh, I didn't went down to Budokan plenty in Florida, went to Jimmy's, went to Jason's. There was no, there's no like, I don't think there's a real method or, or scientific, like you could pinpoint, this is where you need to be to be a champion. Cause these are where all the X's and O's make you to the top of the mountain. You know, I, I don't think that's really the case here in the U.S for a lot of reasons. Sure. But I think hitting the road and, and figuring out, you know, your own destiny is the important part here. Unless you do have some great partners in your vicinity, I think you have to. Yeah, I mean I think there's there's pluses and minuses to both and and you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. You look back and I know that you you moved around way more than I did. I mean I traveled a lot for occasional training camps and trips to Japan, but for the most part in the United States I was at San Jose the whole time. We always had a good amount of partners, but the coaching staff was coming and going over the years. And that's, you know, something that I look back on, you know, when I brought um, Yard and Jerby into my club a couple of years ago, and we were talking to her about her career, and she talked about her coach that she had the same coach from when she was a child, all the way through her Olympic and world medals. And it was kind of, I always kind of looked at that kind of thing with a little bit of envy, because I I wish I had that one person that was with me that I can, you know, just kind of have that that trust, you know, like a coach is not necessarily the person that, you know, can show you the best technique. You know, we talk about like Usain Bolt has a coach uh, and I highly doubt he can run anything like Usain Bolt, but Usain Bolt has a coach that he has some sort of trust in, you know? And I think that in, in America, because the sport is so small, a lot of us are lacking that confidence in somebody, you know, that, that we didn't have. Yeah. I I think it's, you touched on something there that, you know, a coach doesn't have to be just the, 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 the technical guy that gets you to where you need to be because he understands Judah. I think it's someone that you trust, someone that can help guide you or, or guide you into the right direction if there's a few a crossroads, someone that's there next to you in the heat of battle that you could lean on for, for any kind of moral support as well as just, you know, someone you could look at and they know what they got to do to win by the look you give them, you know, and I, I try and, I try and be more than just one thing when, when I'm coaching now, I try and, you know, help in all facets where, you know, if it's a warm up, if it's, uh, whatever the athlete needs, I feel like that's more important. Sure. I'm not just someone to hold your key, but someone that can be a little more well-rounded and, you know, 
not just take care of one element of the, the broad scope of all the different variables that it takes to be a champion. And that's what I really try to do with my limited time being involved with USA Judo, although that's difficult because it's very sporadic. But when I'm there, I'm there. I'm present. I'm in the moment. I'm doing what I can to help, whether that's getting thrown to show an athlete what a sequence could look like because of an athlete leads with one stance or the other stance and the video breakdown, all those different things that gives the athlete enough confidence to go out there and say, I'm ready. That's exactly what it is. It's confidence. It's confidence in your coach. Like you said, when, when people see that that passion and that love that you have for the game and for the moment, that gives the fighter that confidence they need when they walk out on the mat. Because I, I, I can remember the times where where I had that confidence based on who was sitting in my chair and whether it was a certain time in my career. But there's like, you're out there fighting for that person in the chair sometimes. And I know it sounds kind of goofy, but like you just say, look, I got to win. This guy's here for me. And I, you know, we've been training hard and I, you know, it's a, it's an individual sport, but you're out there, you know, representing your team and you're, you're trying to do the best you can for your coach. And the more confidence you have in your coach, the better you're going to fight for that person when they're sitting there for you. That's so true. And I have like, you know, right now, today, this week, there's a fighter that I'm not with. He's a, a fighter in Bellator. Sure, it's not judo. But to me, it doesn't matter the, the combat discipline or sport. It's that same trust. He trusts me so much. He wants to win. He would have done anything to have me go with him. But it's in Connecticut. It's Bellator. This guy, J.J. Wilson, he's amazing. He's on the main card. He's a, a young prospect, hungry. And he is one of those sponges. He peeps in something, and he doesn't just do it then. He does it in the biggest moment of a fight and wins with it. And it's, like, amazing to see. It's, like, right. really compelling and motivating and, and makes me have hope that this is what I love doing. Yeah. And, um, and, and it's just one of those things I can't be with him. You know, it's the COVID era. I travel. I got a second kid on the way. I have a wife. I'm, I'm right now, we moved out of our house. We're in an Airbnb because we had a, a leak. So our house was being demoed. And it's, like... Man, a lot of factors, but I'm touching on that point where, you know, an athlete like him looked at me and was like, you know, please come with me. It broke my heart. I can't. I just can't do it. And right. best of luck. I hope he wins this uh, Saturday. But it's that. It's like having that trust with, with your athlete. And that's really what it's about, you know, is, is having your athlete reach their potential. I know, you know, a lot of us, you and me are, are and my brother are, are three of probably the most qualified, uh, statistically successful judo in America that didn't make an Olympic team. And yeah. that's something I, I really have been okay with for a long time now. It's not something that, that really dawns on me that gives me heartache or anything. Sure. Because, you know, it, it helps me in this new chapter of coaching. And I feel like I've lived multiple lives because I had to deal with that. And I've had to like, okay, I didn't make it. What's next? You know, I've dealt with those things. And, you know, having a coach there my brother was the most comforting aspect of being in a coaching chair you know so he wasn't a a coach per se but i had been with him since i was seven years old on the mat and that's something you know that you can't <laughs> you can't put anyone else in a box and tell them to recreate what my brother might look like or say in a moment that's going to help me so in the finals of most uh, events like the new york open or with different tournaments that he came to as not a competitor, I made sure he was there coaching. And a lot of times he, he didn't have one of those dumb coaches badges and he would get booted. But it was still the fact that he was there and I could see, look look for him. That that was, you know, some of my most successful events were the times he was there. 
Yeah, you and I have had, I mean, I think our careers were paralleled in many ways. I think we we had some of the similar struggles. Toward the end of your career, you're training in San Jose. So you and I were, were training together a lot. Um, over the years, we've traveled a lot. I think we had similar results in not just like the tournaments that we were able to win, but you and I both had the same problem too. I think on a good day, you could throw anybody in the world, but you just had a hard time putting it together every time. And I think that was a struggle that I, totally. you know, I, on a great day, I was able to, to beat some really good judo players. I mean, I, I've beaten world and Olympic medalists, but never at the right time. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it kind of, uh, it's tough looking back, but I, I, I'm like you, I don't have any, uh, yeah. I don't have any regrets on my career. I moved on. I was down, but you and I both, we finished as, you know, Olympic team alternates, which, you know, a lot of people think, oh, that's great. You got to go. I'm like, uh, no, we, we didn't get to <laughs> no, go. <laughs> But, you know, and especially now that you've got kids, you realize the world is, is much bigger. But so when you finish your judo career, um, so for some of the people out there that don't know, Justin, you came back to San Jose and oddly enough, you through wrestling, I believe you were able to end up getting into Menlo college, which is a great place to go to school and, you know, finish up train. And so how did you end up at Menlo college? So it's kind of total happenstance where, so the San Jose um, Olympic trials in 2004. So um, the head coach of the wrestling team, the Menlo, went to watch. And he, uh, you know, my day ended very disappointing, about as disappointing as it can end. A few weeks later, I got a call, and it was Keith Spataro, who's the head coach then. Now he's the AD at Menlo College. And he's like, I was just wondering, what's your, you know, interest in maybe finishing your degree and wrestling. Um, and I'm like, you know, I don't know. Things are, you know, right now up is down, black is white. I'm sleeping until noon. <laughs> I don't even know what, you know, it's just a few months after the trial. So, right. uh, he's like, you know what? I'm going to hop on a plane and come to you and just, you know, just see and talk to you. So he came down and he's like, you know what? I don't expect you to be, you know, a wrestler here. I would love it if you came up here and helped our guys by being a leader on the mat. And if you can wrestle on, you know, at these events, that would be great. You know, as you know, there's San Jose state down the road, 20 minutes, Cahill's 20 minutes North. Uh, that's something you'd be interested. In. And you know what? I didn't have any other options. I could either live with my dad at age 22 or 23 or just figure it out, which at that point I needed to get away. Sure. So I left, I left. And this is 2004, right after 2004. And um, uh, I ended up, you know, I'm that 24-year-old going to school with a bunch of 18-year-olds. And um, I, I, the, the, the classes that transferred the most from my school at, at, at Nebraska, because you have to take it, Menlo is a, a business school. So I went to Nebraska as a Bachelor of Fine Arts. So there's nothing really, you know, parallel that your your credits can transfer into so i ended up becoming like a sophomore because only about two-thirds of my credits transfer in so i had three more years of school and i ended up uh getting my degree in liberal arts in humanities as a, a specified you know area of humanities which was a little bit of everything but it was almost perfect for where my head was at where you get business you get uh sociology you get poli sci you get uh a lot of different things that, you know, if you were specifically a business major, you wouldn't get to do. 
And it helped me broaden my horizons. And I actually had a worldview at this point because I'd been to about 40 countries by the time I was 24. Whereas, you know, before going to college in Nebraska, you know, I'm just reading black and white words on a page that didn't really speak to me. But by the time I was in my mid-20s going to school, the content actually, you know, was relevant because I feel like I had a worldview and was building an ideology and I kind of had a frame of mind about how I saw things rather than just like, oh, I'll remember this for the test. It actually kind of soaked its way in. Right. And I I looked, it was about two months into my, my, my schooling at Menlo and I looked at the schedule of uh, when their national tournament is for, for NAIA because in an, I couldn't transfer to a Division One school or a Division Two school because my clock had started and you only get four years. To, to wrestle or to do football or basketball or baseball or any sport. So with NAI, your clock stops and you could continue it. If you're 40 years old, you could go back and play whatever sport you, you started in at college earlier. So I still had, you know, three years of wrestling. Old yeah. <laughs> so, so I was like looking at this, like, I don't know if I want to do all that, you know, cause I wrestled in a couple tournaments and it just wasn't the level that would would excite me. I, I think I had nine matches and all of them were technical falls. And it was just like, you know, I was used to wrestling the best of the best. Right. And, but it, re- it really did allow me to like, okay, I could cross chain wrestling and do judo at San Jose. So I was doing a couple practices a day and doing my schoolwork. And then when I looked at the schedule, I saw that their national tournament was on the same day as our U.S. nationals and world team trials. And at that point, I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to just do the judo thing continually because I don't know if you remember, but the, the 2004 Olympic trials ended strangely. I hit my head real hard yep. and I herniated a disc in my neck. And um, I, I got up real quick, but the doctor had touched me. So that was, a, a, you know, a disqualification. Yep. So my, my neck was jacked. My head and neck kind of never really recovered, to be honest. I have a bulging herniated disc that still gives me some, some fits in my, down my arm. But at the time, it really wasn't that good. So I had to do PT and get cortisone shots put in and have uh, traction and all sorts of trigger point release therapy all the time. And uh, I was like, you know what? This wrestling thing is not helping my neck. Judo sucks for your neck and body, but wrestling is on another level because people are just pulling on your head full time. Sure. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick back on this wrestling and I'm going to cross train a little bit just to keep me, you know, creative because I don't really have a coach at this point. I would go to San Jose State and train with you, train with Jose Ben Cosme and Shozo Bakuda and Anthony Dell and all these like legit great training partners and competitors, but there's no one guiding me. Right. So I was just doing my own thing. I'd go to Cahill's and, and Brett Barron would some, sometimes be my, my kind of coach who would show up at tournaments, but really just me steering the ship and yeah. during this time i've probably had the best results in my career i i i had the most success statistically at least i i went to europe and i made the semifinals of three world cup events and uh those aren't just world cups they're the grand prix grand slams it's all they were just called world cups in our day right. rather than paris and Mos- moscow right so i was beating you know the, the best guys in the world and i was just doing it solo and I was like, okay, there's something to this. I kind of, maybe I found my, my vibration here where I could do this. It was just it was demanding, you know, not having anyone to lean on. And it was, it was arduous and exhausting traveling over the weekend and then flying back to catch class on Monday. And 
being able to to navigate those waters. And I remember really being really just like overly burnt out in 2005 after about a year of this. And after the Worlds, I made the, the Egypt the World Team in 2005 after a really stellar 2005 year. I'm like, I'm taking a year off. I just can't do it. I'm going to focus on school. I'm going to try and do as, you know, take 30 credits a semester so I can pretty much bank all that and then give myself a good year and a half to just focus on judo. Because at that point, I was kind of, I feel like the right approach because you didn't have to do a two and a half year qualification of points. You just had to, you know, maybe be number one for the trials. So that was my thought process. I took a year off and I did a lot of school and it was really, it was a really good year for me. I, I started doing other things with my life. I got a job. I, for the first time really in my life, I was maybe not the right environment, but I was bar backing for a club for Billy Worthington up in San Francisco. Yep. I was uh, training on my own time. Uh, I was doing really focused in on school and I actually made friends, and it was a little different. It was a little bit too comforting because I was like, you know, I have to get used to this. <laughs> I get used to not having to live out of a bag, yeah. and and just cut weight constantly because that was always my, you know, that was the tough thing for me. I was, uh, you know, seventy two, seventy four kilos cutting to sixty six kilos, and it, it took it out of me. So I had a good time that year and just got my ducks all lined up, and it was kind of. My own insecurity, maybe, but it is a regret. I really wish I would have stuck it out up in the Bay Area for that last that last year, 2007, 2008. Yeah. I, uh, I I moved to the East Coast. The Olympic coach was Jason Morris, and we had talked a lot. And he, you know, he expressed his you know opinion on what he thought of how I needed to make the team would be. You know, he's the Olympic coach. I was the number one player this would be perfect. And initially, yeah, I think that was the right move. I had a really successful first few months, six months there. I, I meddled a lot of big tournaments, the British Open. I, I meddled in Finland. I did a lot of things. But over the course of that time frame, you know, it, but not just him. He, it wasn't Jason. It was me. I, I was living in Scotia, New York. It was 14 degrees on the daily. Uh, I was cutting weight. Everyone was, you know, seven or eight years younger than me. Uh, it just, I didn't have that much outside of judo. And I felt like leading up to that, I should have taken more um, stock in that, that that was important to me. Not just the sunshine in California, but just like having people I could relate to on the daily. Right. It was tough. It was tough to, to be able to, just okay i'm all in judo 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 but at this time i'm 27 you know i'm not 17 where that that's that, like easier i had other interests i had other other needs socially and you know maybe i, I wasn't able to perform the best because i just wasn't content and I, I i was looking over at other places i've been like second guessing all the time and that was on me you know i, I probably should have just stayed the course and been able to function for that last time and really known that this is important so I'm going to do it but I wavered and it became more and more difficult and I, I felt like I isolated almost myself from the people around me because I had that, that thought process that I just explained yeah it's it's a tough you know in hindsight looking back you know at the way the things that you could have done or should have done you know we all kind of do that especially those of us that you know kind of fell short slightly from the goals that we had for ourselves you know looking back we all think like what 
what could we have done different? You know, and there's, there's no real answer. I mean, judo, you know, grappling, wrestling, these are sports that are just, you know, the finest detail can make the difference on a match, you know, and it's something that we can sit there and, you know, so little, there's no, yeah, you can, there's no take backs, right? You hear it's like you know, a quick thing happens and it's <laughs> okay. There was a $6,000 trip that lasted six seconds, right? you know, like, it happened to me. I, you were at one of these. Oh, I've been you know, to a few I of them. Trained, I, <laughs> yeah. I went to a tournament. We, we were in Korea and it was my first tournament back after the Olympic truck. And uh, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. It was uh, maybe six months after the Olympic trials and, uh, cut weight, flew, uh, did all the whole song and dance. We got to Jeju Island. First round, I have a guy from Niger. He's about six foot four. Right. And he grabbed my he grabbed my leg and ran about seventy five feet <laughs> to the next mat, and I fell flat on my back. Uh, and I had to rash. I had to like I had to like contemplate all the decisions I'd made in my life for the next three days while I'm sitting there. You know, it was, yeah, it's a it's a long flight home after a day like that. <laughs> oh yeah, that that same day, I think I. I actually had a pretty decent day, and I remember I was. Uh, oh, you had a great day, dude! You you fought for third, and you you. I remember you fought at the time the the Korean, the number one who was uh, Lee Lee Wong Hee Lee, yeah. and you were man, you should have won that match, dude! I remember it. Yeah, that, so that was the semifinal, and then Fritch, I was I was winning with like uh, yeah. thirty seconds Until left, end, and he yeah. caught me. I was like, I can't believe I just fell for that thirty seconds left. I lost. I was like, yeah. Yeah. I, so, so yeah, those, those are uh, the days, man. That's how it all works out. So, so after all this happens, I mean, I, you and I have had some good times together on the mat. Um, I was just thinking of it when I was uh, headed over here to, to do this about some of the fun times. Cause I know we, we talk about all the crazy stuff. There's a small memory that I'm going to, I'm going to shoot out at you right now to see if you, I'm sure you remember. Cause it was, uh, uh-huh. it was one of those times where it's a little bit crazy. I know that, uh, we won't talk about all the crazy stuff, but just <laughs> the life of an of an athlete traveling. I remember going one time, you were my roommate and, um, I, I can't, I think it was the British open. We were in London, I think. And, uh, you, you know, we fly over here and this is what Americans have to deal with a long flight to get to these tournaments. So we're like jet lagged. So you and I like pass out. Oh, I remember. I know exactly. Yeah. We're in our room and like, we wake up and we're like, man, there's like fire alarm going off. So we're like, we kind of just like, we're zoned. Out. I mean, we're like jet lagged, wake up. I don't even know what time it is. So we open the door. And there's like smoke in the hallway and there's a firefighter. Look, he looked at you and I, and he was like, are you guys insane? (laughs) You're still in your room. Like they gave us those little fire jack, you know, the little fire blanket things. Yeah. They were like made of tinfoil. Everyone's already outside in the parking lot of this big hotel. And they're like, we're walking out the door. They're like, you guys were in there that whole time. It's actually on fire. (laughs) Dude. I, I remember being so groggy, like waking up and feeling like, wait, is this a dream? Oh, wait, there's a fireman right there. Huh? <laughs> and I wasn't even wearing shoes. And it turns out that that fire, if I remember right, I think it might have been Bobby Lee. Didn't his, I think a judogi on a lamp or something caused that fire. It was uh, Josh O'Neill and Bobby Lee. They were, you know, two young groms on the tour that were kicking ass and taking names, but they were definitely like, whatever, right. you know, that's just an RG on the lamp. And, and the whole hotel had to be evacuated and it's cold out. And I remember going outside in a shirt and shorts, still groggy, jet lag, no shoes and being like, what, right. or what is happening? I have to lose, you know, in my head, of course, 
tournaments in two days. I'm six kilos over or whatever. Dumb amount. <laughs> I let my, I'm like, how is this the tournament over? Can I eat? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Tune in next week as we continue the story of Justin's judo journey. At the end of his competitive judo career, he was on a quest to find his place. And before he knew it, he was cage-side coaching his lifelong friend, Ronda Rousey, as she was defending her UFC Bantamweight Championship title. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.